Hey, it's Sunny Days. I am the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Listen, I am a podcast her, okay, H-E-R, an activist, a thought leader, pin pusher, and lover of poodles. And I'm Lisa Davis, MPH. I am a lover of social justice, healthy living, dogs, and I love being the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Now is the time for honest, unfiltered conversations, for authentic voices and their stories, and for connection. Join us as we confront the moment head on with this podcast. It is passionate. It is real as lives behind the headlines. Active Allyship, it's more than a hashtag. And listen, it goes beyond the likes, the retweets, and the hashtags, making space for the vital dialogue necessary for racial justice. And now, on to the show. Lisa Davis, so glad you're listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Unfortunately, my amazing co-host Sunny Days is away today. I am so thrilled to have on the program David M. Rubenstein, New York Times bestselling author of How to Lead. He's here today to talk about his fantastic book, The American Experiment, Dialogues on a Dream, featuring Ken Burns, Madeline Albright, John Meacham, Billie Jean King, Winston Marsalis, Justice so- Sonia Sotomayor, and so many more. Hello there, David. Welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's nice to have you. The first thing we ask every guest is, what were you marinated in? Meaning, what values were you raised with? What kind of shaped you? Well, I grew up in a blue-collar family, a Jewish blue-collar family in Baltimore. My parents uh, had no money. They weren't college or high school educated. So I was grown, grew up with the values of uh, a blue-collar kind of family that uh, basically wanted their only child to do better than they had done. It's exciting because you have. And did they live to see your successes? Uh, yes. My parents lived uh, until about four or five years ago. They lived to be 85 and 86, respectively. So they were happy. Um, but interestingly, when my mother passed away, and I went through her possessions. The only things that she really kept about me were the things where I was involved in giving away money or philanthropic things, all the other things she didn't really care about. Because she really told me that when you're giving away money, you're actually doing something useful with your life. Right. Well, Takuna alum, right? I'm Jewish, so I know about Sadaka and how important it is to give. So that's wonderful. I want to jump right into your book, right in the, in the introduction. In my view, the Republic persisted and grew into the most powerful nation on earth as a result of a unique combination of factors that came together in a serendipitous way. What are some of these factors, David? Well, what's happened is um, we this country came together from Western settlers, from Western Europe, really, And as a result uh, of many different things that came together, we believe in certain rights. I've called them genes that are part of our our DNA, the belief in equality, the belief in diversity, the belief in immigration, the belief in the American dream, the belief in separation of powers, the belief in civilian control of the military and so forth, and peaceful transfer power. And that's what uh, has gotten us through the 230 years of history. We've had stress tests that have taken us through difficult times, like the Civil War. And most recently, we had a stress test and the, in a presidential election where the incumbent president didn't believe he had lost. And then we had the events of January 6th. But we survived that in part because the military did not believe in anything other than civilian control. The country believed in the peaceful transfer of power. The judges believed in the rule of law. And as a result, we got through that. But it was a stress test for sure. Yeah, it absolutely was. 
And, you know, here on Active Allyship is more than a hashtag. We focus on helping people understand systemic, systemic racism and, and bias. And when you were talking about those 13 key genes, you know, I was thinking about equality. I was thinking about diversity, the American dream. And there's definitely not an equal playing field or a level playing field. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on how we can do this, especially because I find that there's a lot of uh, white people that I speak with who who tend to get defensive. I, I don't have privilege. I don't have this. I, I had to work hard for everything. Yeah, you did, but you're also not a person of color. So I thought that was interesting that you include those key things, but also that we have a long way to go. Not that we haven't come a long way, right? But that right. there's a lot more to go. Look, the country had this rhetoric at the beginning. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It didn't say all women are equal, and it didn't say all white men, but that's what they really meant. All white men were equal. Now we realize that the creed of the country has to be interpreted as all people are equal and have equal opportunities. And as we try to live up to that creed, we obviously have found some problems. We went through slavery. We went through the Jim Crow laws. We went through the lynchings. And we've gone through the George Floyd episodes and similar kinds of things. So racism is part of our country. Unfortunately, we've made a lot of progress, but there's a lot of work to be done for sure. Yeah, there absolutely is. I love Henry Louis Gates Jr. I actually met him in an airport before COVID, and it was such a thrill. In Restoration and Repair, he talked about how Joe Biden was the first president to use the phrase white supremacy in an inaugural address and how he almost fell out of his chair. And I thought that was so important. Did Did that stand out to you at all? Yes. For those who don't know, Skip Gates is the leading, uh, I would say, African-American scholar, the leading scholar about African-American history in this country. He's written about 25 books or so. I interviewed him about one of his books, which is The Reconstruction. And interestingly, after the Civil War ended, uh, it was expected that basically we would uh, have slavery over and we would go about our business as if there hadn't been slavery. But the truth is, we went back to more or less slavery. It was called sharecroppers who were called other kinds of things. But basically, the South uh, and more or less the white establishment reestablished itself, in part because Lincoln wasn't president and Johnson, his successor, really was sympathetic to the white Southerners. So, And he was a white Southerner. So we've been struggling for this for years. And I'd, I'd say it was the birth defect of this country. And we still struggle with it as we struggle with um, sexism as well. As you know, women were not allowed to vote. They also weren't could even own property if they were married for many, many years in this country. And it was a fight to get the women to, to have the right to vote. It didn't occur until 1920. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I, I was listening to an interview with Billie Jean King. She's one of the people in your books on Mark Maron's show. And she was saying that, you know, 1972, she couldn't even get a credit card. Like, you have to have a husband to get a right. I was like, my God, I was five in 1972. That seems so insane, like in my lifetime. Well, it, it is crazy. And when you think about it, Billie Jean King, who has her own book out now, yes. about the fact that I interviewed her about the fact that she fought for equal uh, pay for, for women and, and male tennis players. And that took a long time to get done. She also came out of the closet, so-called, and, and said while she was a professional athlete that she was a lesbian, which was thought to be the kiss of death for a professional athlete in those days. Obviously, we've gone a long way since then. And But she was uh, courageous in breaking that barrier. Yeah, you know what I thought was so great about her? She talked about this in your book and also on Marin's podcast that she had this epiphany at age 12 when she saw just all these white people in their white tennis clothes. And she's like, where is everybody else? And that got her into inclusion, equity, social justice. And then I think about somebody like Colin Kaepernick who kneeled to protest police brutality. And so many people didn't get it and made it something that it wasn't. And it just seems very frustrating when you're trying to make change. And I feel like there's so much pushback. 
you know, the interesting thing is that the human brain is by far the most impressive thing that has ever been developed by anybody. Either God gave it to us or somehow developed through evolution. And the brain can come up with ways to get to the moon, conquer diseases and things like this. But there's something in the brain that says, if you look different than me, I'm not going to like you. And as a result of this, we've had for thousands of years racism because people look different than, than you might look or I might look. And it's amazing that the brain just has this flaw in it that it treats people differently because they have a different color of skin. Well, I think that's why we have to educate people, right, at a very early age. Like my grandparents and my parents taught me at a very early age the evils of racism. They taught, to, you know, they experienced a lot of anti-Semitism. I experienced a lot of anti-Semitism where we grew up. So I think there's this empathy. But I think if you don't talk about it with young children and you just kind of just go along and act like everything's fine, things aren't going to really change. Well, anti-Semitism, uh, your, your last name isn't an uh, obvious Jewish name. No, that's my husband's, which is funny because his dad's Jewish and they changed it when he, when his d- dad came or dad's family came over from Europe, from Lasden to Davis. I think Lasden is beautiful. I wish they hadn't changed it. But my last name is Kroll, K-R-O-L-L, which I don't think is a Jewish name either. Well, I like to say that my ancestors came over and at Ellis Island, they said, well, our name is Rockefeller, but we want a nice ethnic Jewish name. Can you change Rockefeller to Rubenstein? So that's how it became Rubenstein. But the truth is, um, anti-Semitism, like racism, isn't something that hits you over the head. If people don't invite you to their club, they don't call you up and say, because you're Jewish, I'm not inviting you. They just don't invite you, and you don't really know the reasons. Right. So, now, anti-Semitism is still um, a terrible problem in our country, and it's yes. getting worse in many ways for a lot of reasons that you probably know. And therefore, I think that while people who are Jewish can't understand exactly what it's like to be black, you do understand what it's like to be discriminated against. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm glad you said that because there is there is a difference. I'm getting very overwhelmed by what I see as the dumbing down of America, people not wanting to get vaccinated and people believing there's microchips and all the conspiracy theorists. And that 70 percent of Republicans still like really think that Trump won in uh, his book, Mein Kampf. Uh, Adolf Hitler wrote, the big lie is basically this. If you say something outrageous over and over again, eventually people will say, nobody would say something so outrageous if it wasn't true. So if they're saying it over and over again, it must be true. So if you say over and over again, the election was stolen, eventually some people will believe it. And now you're correct. Roughly 70% of Republicans believe the election was stolen. Though there's no evidence and 65 court cases were dismissed because there was no evidence. The only fraud was the fraud in alleging that there was fraud. Right. And that just, I I find that so discouraging. How does that not get you down? Or do you think about like what's happening to this country? Well, as a general rule of thumb, if you tend to be a pessimist, uh, you don't accomplish as much in life. People that I've interviewed are generally people who have optimism. They've overcome our hurdles. So yes, I'm disappointed that some people believe things I don't believe and I can't believe they believe them. But if I get too depressed about it, you know, I would have to go, you know, do something other than do what I'm doing. And I, I just, I just can't let it beat me, you know, wear me down. No, I think that's a really good point because I am an optimist. And that's why I think for me to be like, oh my gosh, what is happening? Let's jump back into the book. You interviewed, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to say her name right. Uh, J.I.A. Lynn Yang. Yes. You talked you talk to her about the history of immigration. Yes. And you pointed out that, you know, there was a point where, uh, when people were coming from like China or Japan, Southern Europe, Latin America, they weren't as welcome. And she says, yes. And then she, she pointed out this singling out of a group of people based on their ethnicity. Uh, the first time was in 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act. And I feel like there's still a lot of white Americans who feel like 
If you're coming from Ireland, yeah, come on over. But if you're coming from Mexico, we're building that wall as high as we can. I feel like there's definitely a disparity in who we want in our country. Well, when the country was first created, anybody could show up. There were no passports, no visas that showed up. Uh, there was nothing. Then eventually, when people from places other than Western Europe started showing up, people said, wait a second, we don't really want this uh, heterogeneous kind of group here. We want homogenous people. So they started saying, if you're, from, if you're Jewish, you can't come in. Eastern Europe, you can't come in. Asian. Then we ultimately put this into law in 1925, and it was a fairly racist law. And it was so bad that if you were Jewish, you had a hard time getting in this country. So for famously, during the uh, World War II, we turned away Jews who were about to be uh, put in, in, in concentration camps. The famous uh, St. Louis ship came to the United States, saw Miami, couldn't land, and a third of those people on that ship later went, went to Holocaust um, uh, camps. So um, we, we've had this discrimination for a long time. Now, President Kennedy wanted to change it. He couldn't. He didn't live long enough to do it, but President Johnson got the legislation through. From 1965 on, we've become more of what we wanted to be initially, which is the welcoming people. But as we know, under the Trump administration, we basically started said to certain types of people, typically Muslims, you can't, you're not as welcome here. And so, yes, I think people still don't really want people that don't look like them as a general rule of thumb. But and that's that's in, inevitable, I, I suspect, and we're not going to change that overnight. But I do think it's unfortunate. Yeah. And also, you know, I'm looking at Afghan refugees and you see women and children. And I think, how do people want to turn them away and have this assumption that they're all bad? And it's that xenophobia. That's a big problem, too. I think uh, getting refugees in is a difficult situation in our country, for sure. I think that the prejudice against Afghans aren't as, isn't as great as I think against generally Muslims. And overall, Afghans tend to be Muslims by and large. But um, but I, I do think that people from Syria, when they want to come here, or people from Iraq, when they come here, want to come here. There is discrimination. There's no doubt about it. I'm really interested in Frederick Douglass, and you interviewed David W. Blight, and he talked about how Frederick Douglass was taught to read, even though it was illegal to teach slaves to read. And I love that David said, literacy is power. Literacy is a potential means to potential dignity, and it's a potential to escape. I thought that was so powerful. Well, it's true. Slaves were not allowed to read. Why? Because they might learn something and they might realize their situation was terrible. But as you raise literacy, it's a very powerful uh, point. And for this reason, 14% of the adults in this country are functionally illiterate, which means 14% of the adults, more than 35 million people, cannot read at all, or at least past wow. the fourth grade level. If you can't read, you have a very slim chance of becoming successful. 80% of the people in our juvenile delinquency system are functionally illiterate, and two-thirds of the people in our federal prison system are functionally illiterate. So that's one of the big problems of income inequality, and it's one of the, the things that we've all learned. If you learn how to read, you have power. If you have the Internet, you have power. If you can't read and you have no Internet access, or even if you can read you don't have Internet access, you're not really going to be able to develop fully as a, as a human. Yeah, talk to us a little bit about income inequality and your thoughts on that. Well, income inequality is getting worse, not getting better. Uh, obviously, people at the top have done spectacularly well in the last the couple of years. And in fact, we, we created what I call a COVID crater. People fall into this crater because they don't have Internet access, perhaps, or they, they can't afford to go back to work because they have children at home. And, and, and many other reasons, uh, you have bigger and bigger income inequality. And you also have lack of social mobility, which is to say, it's one thing to be at the bottom, but you believe you can work your way to the top, as I believe. Now many people don't believe that. The American dream is increasingly a dream that immigrants have. When they come to this country, they think they can rise to the top. In many cases, they do. People that are born in this country, African-Americans particularly, 
often feel that the system is so discriminatory against them, they can't rise from the top, and they also drop out of high school in very high percentages. So it's a big challenge in this country. There's no doubt that we have, we have to solve that problem. You know, in doing all of these interviews, what were some of the key things? Are there certain people that said something that we were like, oh, wow, I hadn't thought of it that way or something that surprised you? Because there's so many great interviews in the book, David. Well, you know, from doing interviews, you never know exactly what somebody's going to say. Right. And, um, and so you have to be prepared to listen. In other words, I prepare questions in advance, expecting people to say something. and They say something different. You have to, you know, tilt your interview a bit and follow their lead. And so people always talk about things that are surprising. But the most interesting parts of the interviews generally are when people talk about their own background, how they came up from modest circumstances, how they worked hard, how they they failed at some things, or and how they picked themselves up and put themselves back into the game. And that, that's what people like to talk about the most, or how they, they, they try to please their parents or, or things like that. What were some of the things that you found challenging? I mean, I know you're very successful, but it's not just a, a linear climb, right? There's ups and downs along the way. Well, the, my one of my worst experiences was I worked in the Carter White House, and I was at 27 years old, the deputy domestic policy advisor wow. of the United States. I'm riding around Air Force One. I'm advising the president. I'm going to Camp David. And then people told me I was a brilliant young man. If you want a job, call me. Well, when we lost the election to Ronald Reagan in 1980, I started calling these people, and they never called back. Because who wanted a Carter White House aide when Reagan was president? So I had six months where I couldn't find a job, and I didn't want to tell my mother her son was unemployable. So I said I had so many offers, I didn't know which one to take. <laughs> but eventually, after six months, I think she kind of saw through that. But, you know, so that was a low point. Uh, anybody that uh, has gotten anywhere in life has always had some struggles. Uh, no matter who you might look at, everybody has failed at something. If somebody hasn't failed at something, they haven't tried very hard. Yeah, I agree. How, do, how can we make the American dream more equitable for everyone or more attainable? Well, I think education is the most important thing. If you don't get an education, you have no chance of rising up, by and large, with, with very few exceptions. So that's number one. Uh, number two, I, I think we have to um, uh, improve the K-12 system overall, not just reading. But the K-12 system is an embarrassment in many ways, whereas the higher education system is the envy of the world. How can we be so great in higher education and so terrible in K-12? Bill Gates himself poured billions into this, and he's come away frustrated that it still hasn't really made a big difference. Yeah, that is really frustrating. You know, another thing I find frustrating is just the whitewashing of history. I mean, even now, like when I was a kid, and I was a kid in the 70s and a teen in the 80s, you know, we would learn about George Washington and he told a lie about a tree. Well, we didn't know he owned slaves. Like, they don't tell you the whole thing. And even my daughter, who's now in high school, she's a sophomore, she'll come home and be like, you know, mom, they didn't tell it the way you taught me because I go ahead and I really tell her the true history rather than this version that's more pleasant. And I think that goes back to some Americans feeling like if you point out ish problems, then you're, you know, just love it or leave it. There's still a lot of that, I find. Well, yes, when I was in school, I thought uh, George Washington was deified and you know made into a godlike figure. I am involved with the supporting Mount Vernon. I think it's a very good organization. But we have to remember that he was a slave owner. He was a slave owner for virtually all of his life. And um, Abraham Lincoln, who I think was our greatest president, he was not a slave owner, but he didn't really want to free the slaves for most of his life. It was only toward the end of his life that he thought to help win the war, he would free the slaves. It was really a military measure to have the Emancipation Proclamation. He generally didn't think that slavery should be ended in these in the states in which it originally existed. 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that too, because I do think we tend to put certain people on a pedestal. And I think I just want, I just want people to learn what really happened, the good, the bad, the ugly. Cause again, America isn't just one thing, right? It's this American experiment and there's going to be things that are ugly and things that are beautiful. And I think that's what makes America. But, but I'm hoping we can lean more towards a more equitable America for everybody. Well, I hope that's the case. And what I try to do generally when I do things relating to history is I try to educate people about it. So, for example, for once a, a month uh, for the last five years, I've, I've had a session in the Congress, a library of Congress, where I, where I interview a famous historian like Doris Kearns, Governor David McCullough, in front of only members of Congress to try to educate them. Because you really want members of Congress to know about American history because they're writing the laws. And so I try to do things to try to educate people a little bit more about American history in one little thing that I do in my philanthropic efforts. I think that's great. You know, I'm, I'm also just wondering about your thoughts with COVID. I know you mentioned that it was one of the th- big challenges we had along with the reaction of President Trump to his election and, of course, insurrection and everything. You know, we keep hearing about new variants. And where do you see America going with this if, if there's still so many stubborn people who dig their heels in and, and don't want to get vaccinated? Uh, for another uh, thing this morning, I interviewed Tony Fauci, who I've known for quite oh, some time. Oh, Wow. And Tony is uh, a friend of mine, and I've uh, asked him about this. And what he basically said is that we are having a really tough time convincing people to take the uh, the vaccine. It does work. Yep. You know, a lot of people just think it's uh, too much federal government telling them what to do. Many people just don't care about uh, listening to what the federal government is doing. There's no doubt that we will not eliminate uh, covid if we don't have a larger percentage of people in our country vaccinated. Right now, the hospitals and the ICUs in some states are overfilled because these are people who are 99% unvaccinated. If you've been vaccinated, the chance of getting this is very small. You should probably get a booster shot, he would say. Yes. But that's not necessary right now. You can get it in a period of time. But if you're not vaccinated at all, you have a pretty good chance at some point of getting this. And the new Delta variant is very strong. And there's another variant called the Mu variant that is also very strong. So I, I encourage people to get vaccinated. And I have met people who are not vaccinated, and I have a hard time understanding it. And they basically say, well, President Trump didn't really want me to be vaccinated. I don't really know exactly why I should get vaccinated. Interestingly, President Trump takes a lot of credit for getting the vaccine, but he doesn't really want people to get it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. If we get started on Trump, I'll start crying. Your book is amazing. Again, it's David M. Rubenstein, The American Experiment, Dialogues on a Dream. Is there anything you wanted to add today, David, before we go? And just to let you know, it's been such a pleasure having you on. Well, my pleasure to be here. I would just say that people should learn a little bit more about American history. My book isn't going to teach them everything, but it gives them a way to open their eyes to some things in American history and how this country has evolved. And I think they might enjoy it. I think so too. Tell us all the ways we can find your wonderful book and you on social media. I have a, you know, I have a website, davidrubenside.com. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tell your friends and family. This is really important and we want to get the word out. So glad that you're listening. Please keep coming back. Also follow us on Instagram at activeallyship.podcast. Thank you so much.